Well, we continue this morning um, in our We Believe series. Um, we've been spending time thinking about processing that which we believe, uh, our statement of faith, and pressing into that quite a bit. And we've highlighted two overarching uh, intentions and desires for the outcome of this series in our hearts. So it's not just information kind of going in and, and going back out, but actually going in and, and doing the work of answering these two questions, hopefully affirmatively, are you growing in your knowledge of God? And secondly, are you growing in loving Him and loving His people? Those are, those are things to be thinking about as we're going through this series. We're approaching the end. We have two more weeks after today. We'll finish on Christmas morning, actually, uh, speaking about heaven and uh, the, the second coming, the second advent, the one that we are looking forward to with great uh, anticipation. Uh, this morning, what we come to, as Cale mentioned, is what we believe about the church. And we've preached on this before at different times throughout the years, but uh, it's really an important matter to, to continue teaching on, especially today in our culture. It's absolutely vital that we preach on this. Uh, the idea of church for many, uh, if not an antiquated idea that has seen its day and needs to die off, is that it's at the very least gener generally optional. Take it or leave it. What is church to a live-streaming, mask-enduring, panic-fatigued, election-surviving, Zoom-exhausted, news-distrusting, social media-disgusted collection of people? Uh, not just people who are out there, but to all of Jesus' followers who identify with this organization called Sovereign Grace Church Dayton. Thirteen years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a book um, called uh, uh, Why We Love the Church, and he put in plain words the cultural view of the church uh, at that time. He says this, community is hip, but the church is lame. Both inside the church and out, organized religion is seen as oppressive, irrelevant, and a waste of time. Outsiders like Jesus, but not the church. Insiders have been told they can do just fine with God apart from the church. And those thoughts specifically have just only deepened and broadened over these last 13 years, as you know, we really should all be aware of. Many leaving the church and becoming uh, what is uh, most recently called a non-vert, um, a, a book that just came out uh, on, about this, non-verts, people who have um, just converted to, to nothing, to seemingly, at least in their eyes, nothing. So many people who have left Christianity, or any religion for that matter, and have become our religious, so many in fact, that in this country alone, there's approximately around 59 million of them. That's a, that's a, lot, of, a lot of people. There are an ever-increasing number of believers who have started to distance themselves from the church because they've been hurt by the church or ashamed of what people say about the church and not wanting to be associated with the church and wanting to recreate what they call spiritual spaces or um, some, sort of, some sort of distance from the historic church. These are people who are in various levels of potential deconstruction of their faith questioning the veracity of the Word of God, the truthfulness of the Word of God, really just not trusting the institution of the church or the people who claim to be Christians, who say that they love God and love people. The culture's view of the church and reasons for the church have become just absolutely blurry. 
and perhaps yours has as well. And so what I want to do this morning is not to consider our view of the church in particular, but God's view of the church. What is God's view of the church? And there are plenty of verses we could go after, plenty of scriptures, passages we could go after, but I'm picking on one that I personally just love and it informs my life as a pastor and my love for the church, and it's Acts 20, verse 28. So turn your Bibles to Acts 20, verse 28. And you see the depth of God's perspective on the church. As he's speaking to pastors here in this passage. This is the word of God, authoritative, not just a group of random writings that somebody thought was a good idea. This is the true word of God that is sufficient to teach us about the church this morning. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he says to the elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Two points this morning. First, God views the church as the object of his love. Uh, the church in Ephesus at the time was a healthy church. Ephesus is still uh, a town today. Uh, the town nearby, uh, it's just a few hours from our workers that are in that, in that area, and um, about five hours away, I think. And so it's, there, there's, a, there's a thriving kind of town that's right beside Ephesus, which they've uncovered, and it's a beautiful a uh, wonderful thing to be able to see the actual uh, ground that Paul would have walked on and Timothy would have walked on and the Apostle John would have walked on. Paul, and yes, the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit was directing Paul in the writing of Scripture, was giving a much-needed warning to a group of pastors from Ephesus. Actually, the, this, this, this portion of this letter, which is recorded in Acts 20, is actually in the city of Miletus, which is a little bit south of Ephesus. And so these guys had come down to hear what Paul was saying to them, directing to them, and this is what, of all the things Paul could share, this is one of the primary things that he shared. To be vigilant by protecting their own hearts as pastors. Shepherds who are being shepherded graciously and gently by the chief shepherd to be vigilant in protecting the church from false teachers coming from outside and false teachers rising up within the church and to give them a renewed sense of weight and glory and wonder of what the church is. When I'm doubting about the, the, the glory of the church because of the mess that it so often is that I am a part of at times in my own heart, in my own mind, I go back to this verse and say, this is the church that God obtained with his own blood. This is not just an institution. This is not just a 501c3. This is the church that God obtained with his own blood. What could be more telling of the love of God than the truth that he obtained the church, us, those who believe, with his own blood, not somebody else's blood, with his own blood. 
He bought the church by means of the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. Now, how did he do that? We know the story. Cale just shared a little bit of it, and we are well familiar. Hopefully, we're well familiar with this because we preach on this week in, week out, and as we take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming this truth each week, even if we miss it in the sermon. The Bible teaches us that all humanity is not simply sick, a little bit disjointed, but is actually dead in their sins and headed to a right and just and, yes, damning judgment by holy God unless, unless something is done. And, and, and the only thing that could be done is that God himself would pay the penalty for us. And God did do that. God sent Jesus, as Cale just said to the children, God sent Jesus to take on human form and pay the penalty of death on our behalf. This, this, is, this is truth that I know we know so well, and it just lands on us like, mm-hmm. This is glorious truth. This is the center of our existence as the church. This gospel truth. Let it, let it, if, if, it, if it does not fire you up in your bones, let it do the work. Ask the Holy Spirit to let it fire up your bones because it is on account of God obtaining the church with his own blood that we are sitting here today and that we're alive and we have any hope whatsoever. This is our message. This is what we love. This is what we are about primarily. Jesus became our substitute on the cross. That's the message. The one who bore the just wrath, not the, not the angry ranting of a, of, a, of a human God somehow, but the just wrath of holy God, who is in himself merciful and gracious and slow to anger. But he will not let the wicked go unpunished. If he's going to have a people, which he is committed to, he's going to have to die for them. And so those who are given the gift of repentance and faith in him are saved. This is how he obtained the church with his own blood. He made it his very own by paying the penalty that we all rightly deserve, paying it himself. Is this not the greatest display of love? Not not of some sort of cosmic child abuse. This is the greatest display of the love of God the Father. Jesus himself says, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is what Jesus, who is fully God, did. He laid down his life for the church, for all those who are saved, for all those who will ever be saved. He loves the church with the greatest love there is. The church is the object of God's love. It was for the church that Christ died. So God loves the church but that begs the question, really, though, who specifically is the church? God loves the church, but who is the church that he loves and obtained with his own blood? Our statement of faith says it this way. The universal church is the true worshiping community of God's people composed of all the elect from all time. Throughout salvation history, God by his word and spirit has been calling sinful people out of the whole human race to create a new redeemed humanity whom Christ purchased with his blood. With the giving of the spirit at Pentecost, God's people were reconstituted as his new covenant church in continuity with the old covenant people of God, but now brought to fulfillment by the work of Christ. All of God's people are united in one body with Christ as the supreme, sustaining, and life-giving head and set apart for God's own possession and purposes. 
This universal church is mentioned on numerous occasions throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul uses the general term church of God to speak of the church broadly, which includes all of God's people everywhere from all ages. All true believers, as the statement of faith says, and as God's word speaks of, from the Garden of Eden on, not all Israel was true Israel, but the true Israel, those who repented and believed in God by faith, the predecessors of the church, God's people, not just a church in a specific locale, which we'll get to, but the greater church of God, the universal church, not the universalistic church, not the universalist church, but the church universal, that God so loved his people set apart for his purposes. P- Peter would say in 1 Peter 2.9, he, he would call us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, For what purpose? That we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's that's the church. That's the universal church. But it's not just the universal church that God obtained with his own blood. He's talking specifically. It's not just this general thing that's overarching. Although it is that, it is more specifically, not more emphatically, more more consistently. uh, as far as, as, far as uh, contextually, it is in the local church where we see God's love most clearly, affecting one another, where we're involved in each other's lives. Matter of fact, this, this letter that Paul's writing is written not to the universal church first and foremost. Context is to the leaders in the church of the locality of Ephesus. And so, um, statement of faith continues, as an expression of Christ's universal church, the local church is the focal point of God's plan to mature his people and save sinners. That's, that's the church of God that these Ephesian elders are called to care for. They're called to care for specific believers in Ephesus and not all believers of all time. There's a local manifestation of that universal church. So God obtained the church in Ephesus with his own blood. It was the local church. Not only did Jesus die to obtain the universal church, he died to obtain the individual local churches that make up the universal church. On the cross, Jesus didn't have just in mind this this general kind of vast group of saints from all time and from everywhere, although that was certainly on his mind as well for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, but he had in mind the believers in the local church of Ephesus and of Colossae and of Corinth and of Rome and of Antalya, Turkey, and uh, which is our sister church there, and this church specifically in Dayton, Ohio, and other churches in our town. Other gospel churches, people that believe that Jesus is who he says he is and preach God's word as it is. We don't just gather on Sunday mornings to do church. We don't just gather on Wednesday nights because it's something on our calendar, but because the only wise, ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging, holy, good, faithful, sovereign, just, merciful, loving, gracious, patient, eternal, supreme, creator, God, obtained this church. This church. Uh, not saying that us and not anybody else. I'm saying, I'm saying I'm preaching to us this morning. He obtained us with his blood. God loves Sovereign Grace Church Dayton. 
God is pleased when we gather united in this location to grow in our love for him together and to glorify him together. Jesus died to obtain that. Not just this thing that we do on Sundays. He died to obtain the church, this holy nation, this people for his own possession to proclaim his excellencies. Of him who called us out of darkness into his eternal light. So we behold him, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. This is what we do. This is what we're about. This is what we want to be about. This is what we want to grow in. This is what our purpose is. So God loves the local church. But what makes up a local church? It's important to consider as we live in a society that's totally, again, blurred the lines of what a local church is and what it isn't. Just this morning I woke up and I often read, um, kind of look at the AP News list and see if there's anything specific. And of course there's a bunch of stuff, but there's one, one thing that kind of attracted my attention and it was, it was a, a pastor in Knoxville, Tennessee, who had left the church, left his church, pastoring his church, and, and is uh, doing some gardening um, and meeting with people around a fire on Sunday mornings or different, different times. Still um, teaching a little bit, but just mostly having conversations around the fire, and, and then they garden together and, and you know, plant okra and harvest okra. That's what he focused on. And, and it's not that that's not a wonderful thing. It's just, is that, is that the church? Is that a church? He says it's a church. Is that a church? Is that what we're saying? Kevin DeYoung, again, in, in his book that I mentioned earlier, written 13 years ago, says this, the church does not consist of three guys drinking pumpkin spice lattes at Starbucks talking about the spirituality of the violent femmes and why sex in the city is really profound. The local church is one that meets wherever you want it to meet, but exults in the cross of Christ, sings songs to a holy and loving God, has church leaders, good preaching, celebrates the sacraments, exercises discipline, and takes an offering. A church that combines freedom and form in corporate worship has old people and young, artsy types and NASCAR junkies. How many people are NASCAR junkies? I know there's a couple. So, all right, so NASCAR junkies, seekers and stalwarts, and probably has bulletins and bylaws. Uh, we've done away with bulletins for the time being, but we might just bring them back in. I'm not sure. Anyway, but, that, but the reality is, is that, that there, is, there is some definition that God's Word gives us. Part of the reason we have an epidemic of misunderstanding concerning what the church is and isn't in our society is because, I think, the church has been confused herself in its purpose and intention. And we conflate the main truth of the gospel we proclaim with other important messages that we speak about. We, we stand firmly, hear me, we stand firmly against the tide of many in society who believe that the life of the unborn is not valuable. We stand against that wholeheartedly. And there'll be a sermon coming in January where we proclaim specifically that what God's word says about that. And we are not ecstatic at all about the way that the direction of this country has gone. We stand firmly as it concerns the lives of the impoverished or the imperiled about them being significant enough to help and care in our society and to come alongside of them whether we agree entirely or not with something. We, we stand against the gender fluidity or sexual fluidity that somehow is to be accepted as truth in this land and people's truth is people's truth so 
Who are we to say anything different? And we've preached on that recently. We stand against these things, but over all those important messages that we stand firmly on is the one message that we want more than anything to be known for. We want to be known for the grace-soaked, truth-filled message of the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this message that is the power of God for salvation for all who trust in Christ. We sing of Christ, we pray to Christ, we trust in Christ, and we proclaim Christ and Him crucified. This message is what divides houses. It's that message that divides the culture. It's that message that that produces real earnest persecution in the land. It's that message that is the offense, not the Christian. It is the message that offends. And, And that main message is so often swallowed up or lost completely in other important things we speak about and in the way we speak about those things. We, we must be a people of both grace and truth. We cannot just be a people of grace and just let things go by, but we cannot also just be a people of truth where we're throwing truth bombs everywhere we go. We must be a people of grace and truth. This is our king. This is the one who leads us, the one who speaks with grace and truth. This epidemic of misunderstanding in our culture is also because our culture is generally pretty individualistic. Our culture's message is one that exalts in thinking about yourself, what you want, what you need, what's best for you, living your dream, finding your destiny, choosing your path, finding your truth. And no one can come up against that because it's your truth. And, And your truth is fine and your truth is fine unless your truth tells me that my truth isn't fine because it's no truth at all. We, we don't want to think of ourselves as connected to other people or having responsibilities to that larger group unless it serves the purpose of achieving our own personal goals and, and personal dreams. If it fits our schedule, if it fits our plans, then fine, otherwise you can forget it. And, and Christians can fall into this as well when it comes to the local church. We can, we can see begin to see the local church as unnecessary or as, as optional, uh, kind of Sunday mornings are a give or take kind of thing. Maybe, maybe there's other things that are worthwhile, they're more worthwhile on any given Sunday, so long as it doesn't interfere with where I or my family want to go in life, I'll, I'll be at church. I'll, I'll participate in what God's doing in the church, with the ones that he's obtained with his own blood. And Christians fall into this as well when it comes to the local church. We can see the local church as that unnecessary kind of optional thing. So if we understand the implications of Acts 20, verse 28, Christ died on the cross not just to add us to some sort of large, universal kind of church that is cross-cultural. It is is that, but as individuals going our own way until we get to heaven. So... There's Christians in different lands, there's Christians around this community, but we don't need to meet together. It's just like everyone's doing their thing and it's all good. No, we, we believe that he died on the cross to add us to local churches, to local manifestations of the universal church that proclaim one primary message with grace and truth. He shed his blood not to save us so we would remain isolated from one another, but to save us into a community of believers called the body of Christ. Our statement of faith says this. It says, therefore all Christians, because these things are true, therefore all Christians are to join themselves as committed members to a specific local church. That's what we believe. The, the, the metaphors are what we believe the Bible teaches. 
Um, that we are members of one another. That we covenant together and we're saying, I, I, I want to care for you and I want to be cared for by you. We're in this together. There's, there's, a, there's the metaphors of a, a household and, and a body with different parts, a temple, a, a flock, all of which have as a key characteristic the idea of individuals joining together with one single identity. So that's the first answer to our question this morning. How does God view the local church? He view, or how does God view the church? He views the church as the object of his love. And if, if you were to just leave at this point, which please don't, but if you were to leave at this point, that's, an, that's plenty to think about. He obtained us with his own blood. Second, God views the church as the setting for his care. So going back to our text, Paul said to the elders of the Ephesian church, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. There is an assumption that this text reveals about believers and it's the fact that we as the church of God bought with the precious blood of Christ need care. We need care. We are not self-sufficient. We need help. If, if you are honest with yourself, we need help. The church of God in this text, again, is called the flock. Uh, it's in a flock of sheep. The word sheep is the most common metaphor in Scripture uh, about the people of God. Specifically, sheep are dependent creatures. I, 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 really, I really dislike it when people say sheep are stupid. Because, because there is a, you know, there's a direct correlation, right? Like, so what you're saying is like, you guys aren't stupid. I'm not stupid. But we are certainly dependent. We are certainly in need of great help. This is how God sees us. And if we're honest with ourselves, how we really are, sheep need to be cared for. Every single one of us is a sheep. And I've said this before and multiple times that Cale, Dan, and I are shepherds, under shepherds, but we are sheep first. That is just the reality. We are sheep first. There's, there's no, no reason to think otherwise. I'm not over any sheep. I'm not under any sheep. I'm just a sheep. I'm, I'm one of, we're all together in this. We're all sheep, we're all dependent. Sheep are defenseless. They are helpless creatures. They're often exposed to danger, need help and protection from animals that see them as easy targets. Unless they feel safe, they don't lay down. They, they need to be led to food. They need to be directed. They need to be protected. They need lots and lots of care. We need lots and lots of care. This is what we're like. We, we need direction. We need care. You and I, we need protection. You and I, we need constant provision. You and I, we need lots of maintenance. Man, God loves his people. God loves his sheep so much that he's designed the local church to provide all of that through his care through the local church. What kind of care specifically? Well, let me break it down into two broad categories. First category is the church should feel the care of God in her life through pastoral care. 
There's much more to say about this than what I'm going to say this morning. I can direct you to other sermons that we've done on pastoral ministry, but, but let me say a few things about pastoral care. This, this text, again, was written to pastors, to elders of the local church in Ephesus. And Paul gives them a command not to rule over those people, but to care for those people. To shepherd his people. So Paul gives these pastors the command to shepherd the church of God. It's a call to tend sheep and make sure they're doing well, being protected, being fed, given direction. And God has always given his people, graciously given his people under shepherds to care for his people. Most often, through scripture, we'll see a breakdown, not on God, but in the people who are called to under-shepherd. People who have forgotten that God obtained his people with his own blood. And all of a sudden start feeling like it's something about me. About my control over people. About my leadership. About the way that we lead over, over people. That we, we, you, tell, you, you do what we tell you to do or else you can leave the church. What a wicked bunch of nonsense. Other things will come into my mind as I said nonsense. It's wicked. Wicked. There's no room. God is not pleased with pastors like that. God has always given his people under shepherds to care for his sheep. He does not intend to shepherd us alone from apart from other sheep. He he charges under shepherds with responsibility to care for his people. He loves his people so much that he has called some people specifically to this glorious task of caring for his people. And again, it's one of Dan Cale's, my highest privileges to be called to that. We are not defined by that. We are defined as child of God, sheep who have given, been given a certain role in the church to shepherd under the great shepherd whom we will one day give account to. It's frightening. And it's glorious. Our statement of faith says, Christ has given the offices of elder and deacon to the church. Elders occupy the sole office of governance and are called to teach, oversee, care for, and protect the flock entrusted to them by the Lord. Deacons provide for the various needs of the church through acts of service. And God gives these and other people as gifts to serve and equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Pastors are called, yes, to oversee, to direct and to lead, and, and, and not to direct and lead specifically to programs or, or busyness, but to direct and lead always and over and over and over again to the Savior. To, to King Jesus, to the cross, to the same answer that Cale, Dan, and I run to every day. And, and we need to be pastored. I, I, I am pastored by Dan and Cale. I don't stand at the top of this mountain and everybody answers to me somehow. We were in this together. All of us need pastoral care. All of us need pastoral accountability. All of us need, I'll get to in a moment, one another. But we direct people. We want to direct people to the cross, not to us, not to some higher plane of reality or better perception of yourself. In all we do, we want Jesus, our Savior, to be seen and savored and other things to become, to become 
secondary in nature to that reality of Christ and him crucified in everything. That I deny myself daily, take up my cross daily. That that's what we do. That that's, that's what we're called to. That's what we're directed to. Not to be so busy that we, we don't even really know what we're doing, but to give our lives as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to the one who purchased us. Pastors primarily care for the sheep. I mean, our, our culture and, and possibly our, our past in churches confused this statement. But let me, just, let me just say what we believe. Pastors primarily care for the sheep by patiently and lovingly and perseveringly and gently pointing over and over and over again and being pointed to King Jesus, the head of the church. Each of us are prone to leave the God we love, aren't we? We're prone to wander. We, we're prone to get ourselves in trouble. And God is not content with that. He has predestined us that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. So, so he's working towards that end. And one of the ways he cares for us as the chief shepherd is by giving us pastors to oversee us. Again, not to lord it over anyone as the world would do and how the world has creeped into the church's leadership, but to actually be running alongside of one another to the Savior where we can find healing and where we can find purpose and where we can find forgiveness and real life amid a very confusing and dark world. And I've said, said to you in, in the past, as, as, a, as a sheep, as a, um, uh, a shepherd, uh, being a sheep first, we, 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 uh, sometimes, sometimes we are out front and we're trying to, you know, call, call to, to lead this way. And other times we're, we're behind and kind of, you know, encouraging us to go a certain way, which I think is what Kale's doing this afternoon for us and helping get us out of the church and into the community just a little bit. There's that direction and so thankful for that. I need that. But the vast majority of the time, shepherds are in the middle of the flock. Walking together. Patiently, slowly, graciously, with perseverance and directing in a certain way. That, that's pastoral leadership. One of, the, one of the ways a pastor cares is seen through the teaching of God's word and to feed God's people with the word of God. We, we need the word of God. It is sustenance for us. We need the word of God to protect God's people from false gospels, false narratives, to be faithful to what is true and right about God and his word and to lay out the hope we have each day and for our future. And when that's not happening, there's really no care taking place. The nicest guy in the world who's planting a garden with some buddies in a, in a, in a, a town that needs to proclaim Christ and him crucified is, is, according to God's word, is not doing the job of a pastor. And deacons as well, godly men and women who serve the church in many different ways, who lead through serving and building up the body of Christ. We, we sent out a, an email uh, a couple weeks ago and then again just a couple days ago. Just really want to, we're looking for, for, um, for men whom you would see 
um, like, oh, I think they'd be a good elder. Or, or, or and, and so, so if you, you know, look at your email, look at your email and, and, and nominate somebody. Put, put some thoughts down for deacons, um, men and women. Who, who, who do you see, uh, people that would really serve, people who you have been served by so well? Take some time. We need your help. We've, we've got our own thoughts on certain things, but on people, but, but there's like, like we don't have eyes on everybody, right, all the time. And, and perhaps you want to nominate yourself. Let us walk with you through that. Elders and deacons gift from God to the church. But it's not just pastors and deacons, right? God shows his care through each other. The, the New Testament is filled with one another commands. Uh, over 31 of them, or 30 of them, in fact, there's, there's, there's one another commands that simply cannot be done in an independent fashion. It just doesn't even make sense, right? You, you need another person to do the one another commands, and, and we need others to fully experience God's care. Not just the nice care of a, a, another person, but actually God's care through one another. This is, this is the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work in his people where there is something fundamentally different about our relationships because we have the Holy Spirit. Not because we have attained something, but because we have been given gifts. And we want to care for one another in that way. So the author of Hebrews says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. According to this verse, uh, one of the means to do the one another care is by meeting together. And certainly meeting in the coffee shop is included. Certainly meeting around a fire is included in that and in homes. But throughout God's word, God's people have always gathered together as our statement of faith says, and as God's word says, for the teaching of the word, for prayer, for the sacraments, for congregational singing and fellowship and mutual edification through the exercise of spiritual gifts. We, we gather to rejoice, we gather to celebrate the gospel together, to enjoy one another, to encourage one another, to sing with each other to the Lord, to, to pray together, to hear the word preached, to enjoy the gifts of baptism, to enjoy the gift of the Lord's Supper together that the Lord Jesus himself instituted. And we do so week after week after week after week after week after week after week for years and years, trusting that the Lord is going to build and strengthen and encourage us as he promises to do. Sometimes we meet day after day to grow together in dependence of our Lord, to care for each other and to protect one another from our tendency to grow hardened to the things of God and to leave the God that we once seemed to love. As we gather, the Holy Spirit utilizes the manifold gifts he's given to the church for the church to be built up and strengthened. So what's God's view, what's God's view of the church? Is it not that the church is the object of our God's great love and the context for his very real care? His very real personal care. That's, that's the church. Is a far cry from the view of many in the church and in our society today. May we be freshly amazed at the wonder and privilege it is to be among those whom God has obtained with his own blood. And just a couple of things in, by way of application to hopefully grow in by God's grace. And I say these two things in particular to you who excel already. 
in these things, but calling each of us to grow in this. To grow first in loving the local church. Grow in loving the local church. If God, who is our Savior, listen, the, the, the reality is when, when no matter where you are on the spectrum in, in, in life concerning your thoughts and opinions about whatever, there can be sometimes a real strong irritation against other Christians and church in general. And you start feeling like, you know, church is just kind of, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, it's, it's, op, it's really optional, and I don't really want to be part of it. I don't want to be part of that and part of that, and I don't want to be known for that or that. What is it really having any sort of effect? Is the church really having any sort of effect? If people are leaving churches by as many people as they say are leaving the church and becoming more, evidently Christianity has become less than 50%, right, in the culture. So in, our, in the States, which has probably always been true as far as real, solid, Bible-believing Christians, but, but like what? What's happening? And so you can kind of start to become cynical about the church. And the church really is not that big of a deal. And, and so we can do it better in some other way. Listen, if God, who is our Savior, loves the local church and shed his own blood for it, then it's only proper for us to grow in loving it as well. And I, I, that's just a question that I have for you. Do you love the local not, not, not do you feel responsible for something in the church or you feel like a duty to go to church, whatever. Do you love the local church. There's some specific ways. I think grow in making the local church a primary priority in your life. Uh, so to prioritize attendance at what the local church provides. What, 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 what we do here is, is just encourage you to come, be a part, Sundays and Wednesdays, men's group, women's group, other events that we have. Um, there's always things vying for, vying for our priorities. And, of course, you're not going to be able to hit everything, right? But the prioritize the local church on your calendar. Consider, then, secondly, how you might serve one another. Because the needs are plentiful. From kitchen help to greeters to nursery workers. Young families. Young families who, are, who have lots of kids. Older folks here in this church? Maybe you don't have children at home right now or maybe you're single. Come alongside the young families. Ask if you can hold one of their children during the service or take them to the care and console room or something. Talk ways to serve. I, right before the service, I saw Carol holding uh, one of the Compton boys. And I just, I was like, yes. Just, just being thoughtful. Stuff like that. It doesn't have to be like a specific way to serve in this church by way of going through an application process and everything. Just look around you and serve. But also, we need more nursery workers and we need greeters and we need kitchen help and all of that. Utilizing the gifts God's given you for the common good of one another. Consider thirdly how you might grow in looking across at another person whom you don't know well and say, I'm going to get to know them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go talk with them after the service. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to invite them over to our house. Each of us have stories that are rich with wonder and difficulty, sorrow and pain and rejoicing, and we've been loved and redeemed by God. So get to know each other. 
as you get to know each other. Consider how you might pray for one another when you're together. Is there a way I can pray for you? Is there something specific just to be able to meet a need? You don't have to have a flowery prayer or anything, just to, just to sit and pray with somebody for a moment. Maybe on a Sunday, maybe on a Monday, maybe it's, maybe it's texting somebody during the week, or if you're not a texter, phone. And if you're not a phone person, send a card. If you're not a card person, then get out of your house and get in your car and knock on the door. If you're not a, that kind of person, then, then look, just come talk to me, I guess, and we'll figure something out. But it's like, <laughs> there's got to be something that you can do, right? Um, consider then, finally, how you might grow by being hospitable to one another. As there's so many, so many in this church that are hospitable. So again, preaching to the choir on the one hand, on the other hand, let's just excel all the more. There's, there's just such joy in playing together and such joy in praying together and such joy in eating together. How patiently and lovingly might we interact with one another even in the middle of significant disagreement or difficulty if we would only recall that each of us are loved and purchased in mercy and love by our gracious God. You know, the church is where I grew up and learned God's word. I heard of my need for a savior. I gave my life to Jesus. I was baptized. I enjoyed learning to pray from older people in the congregation, heard from missionaries, and gained a heart for the unreached people around the world. It's where Joy and I started our marriage and grew in relationships and continue to this day to learn how to grow in godliness as a man and a woman and a married couple through the preaching of the word and watching others who have gone before us. It's where we began our family, where we dedicated our kids to the Lord and continued to entrust them to his care. It's where I've seen many dear brothers and sisters pass from this life into, into glory. And it is the place where I pray by God's grace, I will also get the joy of passing from this life into glory. But the churches we've had the privilege of being a part of in the past have not been perfect. Some have had significant issues and disappointments and frustrations and, and have caused various levels of hurt in our lives. And this church, Sovereign Grace Church Dayton, as wonderful, really wonderful as it is, is just not perfect. And I've said it plenty of times, we do not fire on all cylinders in this place. God has been faithful, though, to show himself strong. We, we don't meet everyone's felt needs. There are frustrations from time to time, unmet expectations, pastoral blunders, and, and many other things that tempt each of us to feel disappointed. And as a pastor since 1993, I've been in the middle of a lot of those disappointments that people feel. And of course, I've got my own disappointments that I deal with. But with all that said, the local church is truly a sweet, sweet place on this planet. As I left the midweek gathering this past Wednesday night, I just thank God for the sweetness of being able to meet in the middle of the week and the, the hump day, get, get together and talk about the Holy Spirit together and pray and to sing and to learn some other things about God together and, and then to sit around outside. I think I think I think I got home at 9.45 that night, and it was just like it was just this wonderful reality of eating together and spending time together. What a glorious reality to encourage one another, to learn from God's word together, to sing and pray with one another. This this church is an imperfect place made up of imperfect people that point each other to the perfect Savior in imperfect ways through the perfect word of God in the power of the Spirit. And it's just simply glorious. Second big application, and we'll close. 
know that God's purpose for the church is clear. It's not confusing whatsoever. The, our, our, our statement of faith has a, a big statement. I'm just going to quote our mission statement because it kind of takes all that big paragraph and puts it into a couple of lines. We exist to glorify God. The church exists. This church exists to glorify God by maturing and multiplying disciples who enjoy, declare, and display the good news of Jesus for the joy of all peoples. We are something, we are, we are part of something eternal here. By the Spirit and the Word of God, we are being transformed into the image of Jesus together. Our message is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's this message that we want to share unceasingly with both grace and truth. We can be assured that we, as we proclaim Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, that some will come to believe. We can be assured that uh, we will have the privilege of taking them deeper into the glories of Calvary even as we continue in the same. We can be assured that as dark as the days are that we live in, the Lord promises to build and guide and preserve those whom he obtained by his own blood to the end of the age. And we can be assured that on that day when Jesus returns, he will complete that which he began and gather the church from every tribe and every tongue and every nation as his people, that is his own possession, that he will dwell with forever. So as imperfect as the church is, and I will say as imperfect as Sovereign Grace Church Dayton is, is it not the greatest privilege to be part of that which God obtained and continues to care for together by his love day after day until that final day? It is glorious, and I have such a great joy to be part of this church together with you, and I pray you feel that as well.